This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Hello, everyone. This is episode 96 of the Travel Writing World podcast. As you'll remember from the announcement in episode 94, we're publishing four of Bill Colgrave's interviews here on Travel Writing World. This is his second interview, this one with the late Alexander Freiter, the celebrated journalist and author who brought us works like Chasing the Monsoon, A Modern Pilgrimage Through India. Let's listen in. We're today continuing our conversations with contemporary travel writers in conjunction with the publication of my collection of travel writing, Scraps of Wool, being published by Unbound. And today I'm talking to my friend Alex Freiter, who was for many years the chief travel correspondent of The Observer and himself a successful and prolific travel book writer. Alex actually started his life travelling in that he was born in the New Hebrides, which is now Vanuatu. Um, Alex, how did it happen that that's where you were born? Uh, My father was uh, a Presbyterian missionary doctor, and he'd been appointed director of the British Hospital. I should point out that Vanuatu, in those days called the New Hebrides, was a condominium. In other words, it was a, a, a colony run or misrun by Britain and France jointly. And everything was duplicated. Two, two hospitals, two courts, two justice systems, two sets of coinage, two sets of postage stamps, the whole works. They, we, 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 uh, we, we call it a condominium. The locals called it pandemonium. But th- my dad was out there running the British hospital, which is how I came to be born there. And do you remember much about it? I do. Um, a surprising amount. I mean, I was, we, we, my mother and my sister and I were booted out in 1942 when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And all the European women and children were ordered off to Sydney. And they put us aboard a small tramp steamer and, 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 and off we went. But there are various things I recall. I, um, the, a, a, something stuck in my memory. A group of... A, I, I was with my dad... And we saw a group of men, a group of islanders, shackled together, shuffling off with the uh, with a couple of policemen being taken off to jail. And I said to my dad, What's, "What what have those men done?" And he said, "They're cannibals." And and that, that was it was illegal. And later, years later, I actually met an ex-cannibal who was very interesting about the whole the way you prepared a body. They call it long pig. You stick the body up against the wall, then you whack it with a canoe paddle. And uh, when, when it's been sufficiently tenderized, then you roast it. And he said, the best bits are the palms of the hands and the fingers. You suck the fingers. And you heard all about that when you were six or seven years old? In, indeed, yes. It's never left me. I, 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 the idea of being vegetarian is ridiculous. And then you went to Australia uh-huh. and, and lived there for a bit. Uh-huh. And how was it that you became a British-based travel journalist and travel writer. I belong to that generation of Australians who just got the hell out. Um, back, back when I was at, at, at uni, um, it, everyone, everyone of any interest were headed for England. 
um, and there were there were Italian migrant ships sailing out to Australia, and they would take you back to Europe, uh, sixteen to a cabin for a derisory sum of money. And I sort of came from the same generation as Clive James. Um, that, those, those young, enterprising Australians who came across the UK and put things to rights. My friend Philip Knightley, did you know him? I did, yes. Lovely guy. We, t- we, we worked together in 1979 when uh, I created, when the Times had their their year-long strike. Uh-huh. And Philip and I got together under the aegis of a brilliant guy called John Graham. Uh-huh. And we created Not the Times. We sold, we produced a, a parody of the Times. You probably saw it. Uh-huh. We sold 600,000 copies in three weeks. Really? Yep. And well, Philip I, was, the, was very much the leading light as a Sunday Times right, man. Right, right. Well, I, I was at the Observer at the time, so it yeah. was a great, great, great year for us. Yeah, we, of course. We were actually, yes, putting on readers. So you got a job when you arrived in, in Britain. You got a job with the Observer? I got a job. Well, I mean, I started writing for Punch uh, and got, uh, got a, off, offered a job uh, on, on the staff as, as an assistant editor. Um, and that was, it was a, a funny sort of place. Um, Everything had to be funny. You say, you, you say, you ask somebody, what, what's the time? And it would come back as a, the answer would come back as a joke. And I found this, I was there for three years, and I found it quite stressful, actually, this constant, constant insistence on humour. And at the, at the Observer, you started not as a travel journalist, you started something else, but something got you into travel. I got, well, I, I, I was um, an assistant editor of the, of the, the Colour magazine, um, sitting around with nothing much else, much to do, and somebody came up with an idea for uh, a series of pieces on rural railways in the UK, stopping train Britain. They couldn't afford Paul Theroux, who's the obvious man, but there I was, on the staff, underemployed, so I got sent off to do a dozen railway journeys around the UK, and that was my first taste of travel writing, and I loved it. And then, shortly afterwards... Um, I was talking with a friend uh, about ideas for a new... In, in those days, colour magazines did big series, big ideas. And we came up with the idea of Great Rivers of the World. And um, I was put in charge of that. And it was... That's when I met... My, my, I was able to give all, give all my favourite writers work. So Paul Theroux, for example, went down the Yangtze. Um, Bruce Chapman went down the Volga. Piers Paul Reed went down the Danube, um, and, and 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 so forth and so on. So I got to know all these people, and I kept the best river for myself, the Irrawaddy. The Irrawaddy, uh, and, wonderful. And now yeah. Norman Lewis did the Nile for me on that trip, but he he he'd done a wonderful book uh, on the sailing through Burma on the yeah. Irrawaddy, and it was actually Norman who inspired me to to do this. Uh, and it was a, it was a fantastic few weeks. How lovely for you. All those, every single one of those writers is, is <clears throat> a part of Scraps of Wool. Of course, your mention of, of Chatwin reminds me of the big contribution that you made to, to Scraps of Wool, um, which was when you and I were having an email conversation one day. Uh, I think it was about eight o'clock in the morning and I sent an email to you. And I thought, I'll put at the bottom something you hadn't read before. But I'm certain it turns out you had read it before. I put the glorious words of Bruce Chatwin, which he'd written at the front 
of the 1982 edition of Picador's 1982 edition of Road to Oxiana. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this is... Alex will really love this because it's some of the most beautiful writing ever produced in, in a travel book. Um, and I sent it over to you and said, have this with your breakfast coffee. Within three or four minutes, there came back an email from you, Alex, and it simply said, it's bollocks, Bill. At least most of it is. Just bollocks, as you should know better than most. And I was deflated. This is my industry. I love this. But then I read your next line. It's bollocks, Bill, but we must let the boy flaunt his genius somewhere. And in those little sentences, flaunt his genius, you had summed up for me the whole travel writing business. I yeah. thought I'd, uh, maybe I don't even need to, need to produce my book now. Alex has said it all. He said, <clears throat> OK, we have to make things up, but we also have to allow people to write their best. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> that brings us to the issue of the sort of the, the creative tension between, for travel writers, between the need to present the truth and the sometimes greater need to entertain the reader. Mm. And I know that's something that you all concern yourself well, with. Well, indeed. Um, it's, it's, it's the travel writing conundrum. Um, t- 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 take an example. Uh, uh, you're in a foreign city for the first time. Uh, on your first evening, you go to a bar and you meet some really, really interesting people. Take lots and lots of notes. Next day, you go on a train journey. The train's empty or anyone in the, in, in, in the carriage is boring. Uh, can you, are you entitled to take one of the characters from the bar and put him into the train? I'm, I, I, think, I, I, I think probably you are. Um, my, our, 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 our principal uh, reason for existence is to entertain our readers. And we have, we, we, yes, so I think, yes, I think, uh, would you put him in the train? Absolutely, I would. Absolutely. I mean, in my own uh, simple example, I, I wrote a book about uh, <clears throat> searching for the source of the River Oxus up in the Vakan Corridor of Afghanistan. So I had to go there and then having got there and discovered what I wanted to and more, I then had to come back and I wrote the book um, and reread it. And after we had done the bit, that the finding bit, the coming back bit was dull. There was no point. So I rewrote the whole thing as if all the incidents had taken place on the way out. And I don't think there was anything illegitimate about that. I'm, I'm reminded of, um, uh, which is in the scraps of war, there, was, there is probably the finest travel writing anecdote I've ever read, which, is, which we call Dancing by the Black Sea, which is in the third of the Lee Firma trilogy, The Broken Road, uh, which was edited by my friend Artemis Cooper and Colin Thubron and published in, in 1913, in, in 2013, um, after Paddy Lee Firma's death. And I wrote to her saying, you know, this, you don't get better than this anecdote. And she sent back to me, <clears throat> rather like your own comment, she sent back saying, Bill, none of this is true. Not a single word of it is true. None of it happened, at least... It didn't happen at that time and that place. Mm. So none of it is a lie. 
And what he's done is to gather together so many different incidents, all true, created characters, all true, or reproduced them, mm-hmm. and made it into a story. Now, I find that I find that a legitimate way of entertaining the public. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. I entirely agree. Um, the interesting, um, just on the subject of travel writing, in, in, in the present um, edition of uh, the Literary Review, there's a piece, there's a, a review by Jan Morris of a book called um, Where the Wild Winds Are by Nick Hunt. And uh, Jan Morris makes an interesting point. He says, travel writing as such being a bit obsolete now since so many readers have been everywhere. And I'm just not sure that's true. Is it obsolete? Let me just uh, first of all interject for for those who don't know who Jan Morris is. um, uh, He was James Morris. As James Morris, he was the Times correspondent in 1953, whose job it was to follow the Everest expedition and whose special job it was to keep secret from the world the fact that they'd succeeded in reaching the top of the mountain so that it could be announced in the Times on the day of the Queen's coronation. And subsequently, it was the James Morris who, having got married and had five kids, decided to have what she called that sex change, so-called sex change thing and became Jan Morris and became one of the most celebrated of all travel writers. I don't agree with Jan on that. Um, I've had lots of conversations with her about travel writing and, and really enjoyed them. And I, and I think, in my view, when Herodotus went back to Halicarnassus in 400 BC <clears throat> with his histories, I think the lads next door said, ah, nobody's going to do travel writing anymore because Herodotus done it all. He's done it all. Yeah. And I think people will be saying that forever. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> But, I mean, his point about everyone's been everywhere, uh, I, I disagree with that. I mean, I, I, I've, I've been a professional travel writer working for The Observer for, for 20 years, and I've been to lots of places, but the, the kind of place that people don't get to is North Korea, and I spent an extraordinary two weeks there um, under, under Kim Jong-il, the, the father of the present lunatic. And it was... Um, Strange place. We we were we were taken off to see. Everything is regulated. I mean, we we had uh, there there are ten of us in our group, um, and uh, everything is regulated. Uh, you, you're you're allowed to talk to certain people, and you're not allowed to talk to certain people. I went in not as a journalist. That would have been death. I went in as a retired teacher, and I, from time to time, I get out my notebook, and the, the mind just would say, "What what what are you doing?" And I'd say, well, I'm writing. Uh, I'm, when I get back home, I'm going to give a talk to my to my students, to my ex students about your wonderful country. So that was that was all right. And but the fact that I was writing gun emplacements under tree left is. Um, but the most extraordinary part of that trip, we were taken off to see a place called the West Sea Barrage. Um, uh, it was a, a huge thing. Uh, uh, masterminded by Kim, uh, Kim Jong, Jong-il um, and there was, a, there was a souvenir shop there selling plastic washing up bowls and hundreds of stuffed pheasants um, the work of six local uh, taxidermists on the way back we passed a group of a hundred women 
with dancing by the roadside, beautifully dressed, to the sound of a drum. And we insisted that, the, that they stop the, the vehicle, which they did, and we got out. And they were waiting to celebrate the passage of a letter from the deep sea barrage people to the dear leader. Uh, and they were going to celebrate, they, they would celebrate the, the, the passing of this thing. Um, we got out and um, we stood and looked at each other. And then one of the women walked up to me and held her arms out and she wanted to dance. And um, the drummer started drumming and I, I, I took her in my arms and we, we danced. And then all of us joined in. So up the hundred, we were being passed around from woman to woman. And, was, and we did this for 20 minutes. Our minds were going absolutely spare, but we refused to stop. And I have to say that even today, it's one of the best parties I've ever been to. You, Alex, know um, more about travel, writing, and have read more travel books than, than most people. I wanted to have to get from you some of your favourites. And um, you mentioned before to me Apsley Jerry Garrard. Yeah. Yes, I mean, he, he, was, um, he, he was somebody sort of went back to my childhood because uh, my, my parents had a copy of that. Just to introduce, Apsley Jerry Garrard is the, the man who was on the Scot, the, the fated Scot expedition, the second expedition. And he set off during midwinter on a six-week trip uh, that is during total darkness in some of the most appalling conditions ever survived by human beings anywhere, um, simply to find the egg of an emperor penguin and to bring it back to the Natural History Museum. I think that's correct, isn't it? That's correct, yeah. He wrote, Polar exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time which has ever been devised. Um, and uh, Sarah Wheeler, uh, who wrote a, a wonderful biography of uh, Cherry Gerard, uh, calls it the greatest adventure book of all time, and I think she's probably right. Yeah, she wrote, wrote me a long um, eulogy for, uh, for Cherry Gerard. I mean, she would as the biographer. Um, I'm actually... Uh, meeting her tomorrow as it happens and uh, we'll tell her about your comments but the um, basically saying this is the greatest adventurer I, I would think alongside Shackleton um, so you read that book when you were very young when you I did and also Joshua Slocum I think Josh, indeed, indeed. I mean, he, he, my, my parents, my parents had the uh, uh, the absolute Ger uh, Cherry Gerard book, and they also had Sailing Alone Around the World. And my mother used to read bits of that to me, and that was amazing. He was the first man to sail around the world. He set off from Boston in April 1895, and he arrived back in Newport, Rhode Island, in July 90, 1898. For three years and three months, he never spoke to another living being. But he used to talk to the moon. I've got a quote here. He wrote, Then I turned my face, and there, apparently, at the very end of the bowsprit, was the smiling full moon rising out of the sea. Good evening, sir, I cried. I am glad to see you. <laughs> he was, for a while, the most famous traveller in the world. I'm, I'm sure he was, yes. Yeah, for, for, and was a, and the book was a huge bestseller. Huge. Yeah. Yeah, but so uh, that that was um, that, that, that 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 the whole idea of writing about journeys, I think, may have taken root in me. Then I don't know.
Let me ask you about Robert Louis Stevenson because he lived, did he not, on an island not far from where you were born and initially brought up. Well, I mean, he had, he had what may have been TB, but he had terrible lungs and uh, he, the Scottish climate was, was killing him. So with his wife, he, uh, he journeyed out to the South Pacific and wrote two wonderful books, In the South Seas and the Vailama Papers, uh, which I both have at home. And, the, the, and, and that, that is travel writing at its very, be, very best. And it doesn't age. It, it, it's, it's still a page-turner, you know, 100 years later. As is his book on travelling around on his donkey or with his donkey. Yes, indeed, yes. Yeah. 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 And he left to... He left from... He was a Scottish lawyer, was he not? He, uh, yes. Well, well, yes. I mean, he, he, he did law because his father insisted that he must... His father designed lighthouses. Oh, really? Um, uh, a, fa- a famous builder of lighthouses, which are still there. And uh, he, it was hoped that, the, that, the, that Robert would go into, in, into lighthouse building, but he decided he wanted to be a writer. So, so his father said, you, you must have a qualification. So he sent him off to university and became a lawyer, but he never practised as a lawyer, not really. I mean, he was a writer always from the start. I've included in Scraps of Wool a bit of the Donkey book, plus a bit of Richard Holmes's revisiting of his journey, which he did, I guess, about 20 years ago in Footsteps, uh-huh. uh, another, another fine writer and beautiful recorder of conversation. Um, I'm going to ask you to, um, to choose one travel book, which is your sort of desert island travel book um, in a moment. I'm not certain that it might not be from what you've said to me before, uh, one of the great Rizar Kapuscinski, but it may not be. It is. But, oh, it is. It, it is. is, yeah. And it's not, it's not, a, it's not, it's not a, a, a book, it's a writer. Yeah. Um, I, I think he's one of the finest, he's now dead, unfortunately, sadly, but he was one of the finest writers in English, around. But he was Polish. Uh, he was a Polish journalist. He worked for the Polish press agency. And he turned, he transformed, uh, tr- transferred journalism into literature. And he wrote some of this poll who taught himself English by reading For Whom the Bell Tolls with the Aid of a Dictionary. And then finished up writing, like Conrad, a fellow poll, some of the greatest greatest stuff, stuff that the English language has, um, has produced. And I, I've just got a bit here that I'd like to, uh, like to read out. It's, um, this is a man who learnt English quite recently, and this, he, he's on a village uh, close to the Blue Nile, uh, and it, it, it goes, The African always feels endangered. Nature on this continent strikes such monstrous and aggressive poses Don such vengeful, vengeful and fearsome na- masks. Let such traps and ambushes that man lives with a constant sense of anxiety about tomorrow in unabating uncertainty and dread. And I'd just like to contrast that with Hemingway, who, also in Africa, wrote in a short story called... Uh, true at first light. Hemingway, Hemingway, Hemingway wrote, I never knew of a morning in Africa when I woke that I was not happy. That's a pretty good note to finish our conversation on. Thanks very much indeed, Alexander Freda. My pleasure. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable... 
please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com/support.